hello and welcome back. You may notice a difference. No more freedom machines. That's because due to a trademark infringement, I've had to change the name and get rid of the two words together, freedom machines. So it's now Tuesdays at Dobbs. And the reason I've called it that, I'll aim to be launching this show once a week, every Tuesday. It was completely out of my hands. I love the name Freedom Machines. I've had a podcast for three years or so, but there's just nothing I can do. If the legalities are there and I'm not legally allowed to call something that, unfortunately, I had to change the name. So welcome to just after one episode, the new look, Tuesdays at Dobbs. You know, I'm still getting used to it. I just went for lunch with Monica and we were desperately thinking of a quick way to change the channel. So Monica came up with it. Welcome. I'm going to jump straight in there and begin because there's something close to my heart at the moment from Rupert, who is a very well-traveled biker. Because as you may know, as soon as I get back to Europe, I'm firing up the Bonneville, I'm heading off somewhere. I'm not 100% sure where yet, but I'm doing a big adventure. And this, this is close to my heart from Rupert. Freddie. My first adventure was on an XT500 across Australia, and then after, lots and lots of other bikes, mainly KTMs with, uh, with my other half, Fanny, which we rode around the world on. If you watch The Long Way Down, I actually meet Charlie and Ewan in Zambia on huge GS bikes and lots of backup, and I was just solo with all my kit on my KTM 990 that was ridiculed for being unreliable, but it was actually very reliable, provided you look after the fuel and filters. However, I've now embarked on some new adventures and I'm thinking of the Aprilia 660 Touareg. Why? No idea. I welcome any comments about this bike from you and your followers. I have a Motoguzzi V85 TT in Hong Kong, where I mostly live, and it's perfect for biking enjoyment here. Might be a handful in the sand, despite having adventure credentials, but that said, adventure means different things to different people. To me, it's months and months on end, crossing continents and living in a tent, whereas for others, it's weeks on tar roads and green laning in Wales. The Honda CRF 250L might be the perfect choice with the sensible head on, but ultimately you have to get out of your tent in the, I've never heard of this, I'm embarrassed, in the Nubian desert or B&B in Wales and see a bike that fills you with joy, pride and excitement. Eclectic mix, Rupert. First of all, amazing. You saw Charlie and Ewan while doing your trip. I'm fairly sure this is true. Backstory here, when the Charlie and Ewan were doing their series, The Long Way Around, Down, etc., etc., when they were looking at filming the first ever one, they initially contacted, and this is to the best of my knowledge, so apologies if it's not right, I believe they initially contacted KTM and said, can you give us two bikes because we're planning to ride around the world in essence. And KTM refused. So the team then shifted their, their target over to BMW, asked BMW, look, do you have two bikes that we can use? BMW then said yes. So to the very best of my knowledge, it was actually KTM that was the first choice initially. And for someone who's ridden around the world, Rupert, you like left field choices. It would be very easy to go Japanese or German for that 
guaranteed robustness. But Moto Guzzi V85TT, looking at the Aprilia Touareg, nice choices. I've never ridden the Touareg, but I went to do a test ride of the Moto Guzzi V85TT, which I really liked. And I saw a Touareg there and I didn't expect to see one. And it was for me probably, probably one of the best looking mid-size adventure bikes I've seen. Just perfectly proportioned, beautiful lines. And especially if you get it in the blue and white colors, it's a fantastic looking bike. If I were in the market for a mid-size adventure bike, for me personally, the way I like my bikes to look, it would be the It'll be what you've got. It'd be the good CV85 TT, and it would also be the Aprilia 660 Touareg. I did take a look, Rupert. Let's have a look and see if I can find this. I took a look at the KTM 990 Adventure because I know it's a bike that you have traveled the world on. So that's as good a selling point as any. I had a look at these on Auto Trader three available, but every single one of the three has been marked as sorry now sold. So these are clearly for one, either extremely desirable bikes or two, just very, very rare. I'm just going onto Facebook marketplace. Now there are, there are just two available at the moment. One is a 5,000 pound bike and they do age well. These they have got that very retro Paris Dakar style. There's one for 5,000, there's one for 4,895 pounds. And that's a lovely looking proposition for what would be a bike coming up to 15, 16, 17 years old now. I think they've aged extremely well. It looks like it's come straight out of the Dakar rally. Right, Rupert, I move on. Happy travels. Let me know what you end up going for and where you end up traveling to. Moving on to Scotland, JB, JB, thank you. You've opened my eyes here. I said a while ago that that's it, I'm done. I'm not modifying my bike anymore because I keep changing my mind going back and forward. However, JB's found something that's really grabbed my interest more so than any other thing. So much so that I'm almost certain when I get back, I'm going to buy it. And that is Oxford heated grips. Anyone who knows these Oxford heated grips, they're very often fitted to courier riders going around London, for example. And they've always got this ugly little dash that you have to screw onto your handlebars and about three buttons. They always rust and for me, they look just, just awful. Way too bad to ever use. And you've got these wires exposed. I've never liked them. But Oxford products have now come out with such stealth looking heated grips. I'm looking at them now. They, they would not look out of place straight out of the showroom on a Triumph Bonneville T120, for example. They're about 135 pounds. Black grips. On the right hand side, you've got two tiny buttons just below where your thumb is. And that's how you operate the, the heated grips. And they genuinely look so good. I think this is the biggest game changer I've ever seen in heated grips. They look completely fantastic. I will be buying a set of those, JB, and I, I advise anyone who's on the market or in the market for heated grips, go and look at Oxford's brand new updated specifically heated grips. JB, consumer advice. Thank you. Moving on. How dare you? 
Can a bike, okay. Someone called the, the Honda Doville, the Honda Dullville. And I, I had to save this because, well, first off, nicely done. And I get your point, it's a dull looking bike. But, but, is a motorbike ever really dull? Yes, I admit the looks can be dull of the Doville, but when you jump on a bike, and I'm curious on your thoughts here, is it possible for any motorbike to ever be dull? I remember the first bike I ever bought, just the classic commuter bike. I didn't know what a cool bike looked like when I passed my test. So I went out and I bought a 2006 Honda CB500F, single headlamp, silver. It looked perfectly nice. I actually blew my budget. I spent 1,800 pounds on it, which was ridiculous because I think I had two and a half thousand pounds in the bank. Um, so I almost wiped myself out with this, but I thought, look, it looks good. It's going to be reliable. It's a Honda. I'll spend a bit extra because it's my first bike and just get something reliable. And the day I jumped on it, I thought it was the most fun thing I've ever ridden in my life. It was, it was like being on a fairground ride all the time. It was amazing. But then as you get more into biking, you start to understand more about what bikes you think are cool and what bikes other bikers think, think are cool. And that starts having an effect. I remember after I passed my test, I went over to see my parents and there were, there were two builders over. I think they were working on an extension or something at my parents' house. And they were talking about bikes and I just passed my test. So I was, I was so proud I was a biker. I said to them, oh, I'm a biker too. And they said, oh, yeah what bike have you got? And I said, I've got a Honda CB500F. And they're like, oh, what? The commuter. I'm like, yeah, maybe it's used for commuting. Yeah, possibly. Do you like it? And they're like, hey, well, you know, it does the job. And I, I was heartbroken. That was the first little, little hint that I got that possibly it wasn't the coolest bike on the road. One of my friends then went out and he got a Kawasaki ZX6R, which was a very cool sports bike. And I thought, nope, mm -mm. no, that's it, that's it. I have to get something else. And then I got a bike that was arguably less cool, but we'll brush over that. But my point being this, bikes themselves are inherently fun. I think it's not possible to have a boring bike, but it's just what we perceive as cool or what we connect with looks wise that guides us in a direction, but a bike to its core to be dull, no, just looks, just the looks. Maybe the Doval is dull, but I'm sure it's as fun as anything else. That old Honda CB500 I used to own, just as fun as any other bike. The Suzuki Bandit 600 I used to own. Every single bit as fun as the Bonneville or the Triumph Speed Triple that I've owned. For me, there's no bike specifically that's been more fun. They're all on a level, fun-wise. I move on, Freddie. Honda NC750X. The storage is actually, is this true? The storage is known as the frunk or the front trunk. These bikes are so underrated according to real life reviews. Great choice to the other listener. Uh, I have just received universally good feedback from these Honda NC750s. Again, they don't look like the most exciting bike, but God, Honda do. Honda know how to make bikes just brilliant bikes that are superb at what they do. A lot of the time, they're not the most exciting things in the world, but as a mode of transport, superb. On to Australia. Freddie, I'm Australian. 
and I've got, oh, I've got a 2005 Triumph America. Okay, okay, 790cc carb model. Love the style of this, and I haven't had any issues since owning it for almost a year. People know about the Triumph Speedmaster, which is going on Facebook Marketplace, because the Speedmaster has been reimagined recently. And every time a car or motorbike's reimagined, we all start looking nostalgically at the older models. It happens with the, the Mini, the Fiat 500. It happens with all of the bikes that they bring back. However, unlike the Speedmaster, the Triumph America has gone ludicrously under the radar. If I go onto, for example, Facebook Marketplace now, you can pick up a 2006 790cc Triumph America that looks completely superb. And I haven't even had any time to look properly. This is the very top one. Three and a half thousand pounds for a bike that's got 18,000 miles on the clock. I'm not sure if I'd be able to tell the difference between this and the Speedmaster. They look so similar. And if you want the fuel-injected model, exactly the same engine as my Bonneville, £4,000 for a 2010, for a 2012 Triumph America with 10,000 miles on the clock. Always kept locked in a garage, only ridden on warm sunny days, needs an MOT but it will fly through, it has history, message for more details, private seller, you can't go wrong with that. If you're looking for a cool looking bike ready for the summer, three and a half grand, Triumph America, fantastic. Moving on to Lars, Freddie. You praise Royal Enfield as if it were among the best. They are in fact heavy like none, weak like none. Spare parts are scarce in Europe. The handling is just terrible. Build quality, low, technology is half a century old. The only attraction is the price. I'm truly puzzled about your choice of bikes. I've been riding since the 1970s, mainly Ducati, Motoguzzi, I know where this is going, Laverda, Marini, MV Augusta, Vespa, BMW, KTM, Lambretta, Yamaha, Derby, Husqvarna, etc. It's a lovely choice of brands there. Lovely choice. I started riding adventure bikes before BMW even released the first R80GS. I did road racing for some years and I still ride. All I'm asking, Freddie, open your eyes and mind to acknowledge the different quality bikes, different bike styles. Get the grip of great handling bikes. Feel the soul of some bikes. Dig down in what bike quality has to offer. You will never, ever regret it. Thank you, Lars. Well, this is very interesting reading through that because you're right, I do pretty much universally praise Royal Enfields and it comes down to what I always say. I found the right kind of bike or the right type of bike that I am and that just suits me perfectly. However, you're right, I could potentially and I should probably try different types of bikes a little bit more often. Although I've done a few. I remember I did the Aprilia Tuono back in Tenerife. That's the 1100cc superbike. And while that's impressive, God, it was agony. Oh, Lars, it was just so painful. I could not enjoy the scenery. I got to try two bikes from the same Swedish guy, funnily enough. He gave me the Aprilia Tuono 1100. 
But about two months before that, he gave me the Honda Transalp to try. I was riding around Tenerife on the Transalp. I could not have been more comfortable. The, it was a joy to ride. I was looking around, enjoying the scenery, just all day comfort, made me feel amazing. And I got onto this, the probably better in every single element, Aprilia Tuono. But it was so savage and so brutal and so uncomfortable. I know the handling was better, the dynamism was better, suspension better, but it was, it was agony. Really so painful that by the end, I was, I was glad to be back on my Bonneville. And actually, I would take the Honda Transalp over the Tuano because the Tuano for me is, you go out specifically for a blast on the Tuano, to go out for a blast. And you can't ride calmly on the Tuano at all. It's, you go out to push yourself to the limit, to explore the limits of grip. And then I went to Valencia to the Valencia Motor GP, and I got to try out a huge host of bikes. We had some super nakeds from BMW, a Ducati Supersport, and the Kawasaki H2, which is the 200 horsepower beast. And the funny thing about this is, I tried the BMWs, but for me, they may have been perfectly decent bikes, but there was no soul there, so I didn't connect to that at all. The Ducati was a, a nice, characterful bike, but I knew it wasn't a bike I would ever ride at all. It was just, it was just, the noise was just too much. The position was just a bit too aggressive. I just knew if I bought it, I'd like looking at it every so often, but I'd never actually end up riding it. I'd always pick something else more comfortable, more usable. But then I tested out the Kawasaki H2, a bike that I thought must be totally ludicrous to have a 200 horsepower bike, especially for me, who never really goes quickly. And the lady before me who was trying it, she just didn't get along with it at all. In fact, she, she despised it. She asked to get off it early. So she jumped off it early. And we were in the middle of the hills. It was actually quite cold. And I thought, oh gosh, shall I, shall I offer to take it off and switch? So she takes the BMW and I thought, yeah, I can't miss an opportunity to try 200 horsepower. So we switched keys and I took the Kawasaki and I was actually petrified initially because the Kawasaki, when we were given the speech about all the bikes from the professionals, they said, this is on the most aggressive road tires you're legally allowed to have. They're pretty much the tires you can either use on track or road. They're borderline slicks. So they said, be extremely careful because it's cold at the morning. You've got 200 horsepower and you're basically on slicks. So I was semi freaking out. They were like, oh, just make sure you warm up the tires. And um, well, what, what am I gonna do to warm up the tires in reality? I'm an average rider who's not going to be pushing it to warm them up enough. So I just agreed and started riding it. And I was petrified for the first probably two minutes or so. And the reality is bikes with half the horsepower were leaving me initially because it was so intimidating having that power. But after two minutes, I started to completely trust the bike and it turned into, for me, the most sublime handling bike and feeling bike I've ever ridden. 200 horsepower, you feel like you're on a spaceship. The handling, you're gliding around the bends, even with the 200 horsepower. And you get to a straight, put it into second gear, open up the throttle as much as you possibly can, as quickly as possible, and you're on the horizon in two seconds. I've never had a feeling like it. So Lars, I, I, will, I will agree with your point there. If you find the right kind of bike that's for you, oh, it's heaven. 
And that's the thing with often multiple tests of different bikes. I would never myself go and test out a Kawasaki H2. It's only because it was put in front of me that I actually ended up testing it. And who would have guessed? I loved it. If I was a millionaire, I would probably have bought that bike on the spot if money was so comfortable because that feeling of agility and power was so addictive. I got off the bike, just adrenaline pumping. I was almost shaking with adrenaline. And even just to have that feeling five times a year on the most perfect weather with the most beautiful roads is worth it if you've got the money for something like that. So yes, I do get it, Lars. I move on. Freddie, listening to your podcast has given me an itch that I just can't resist scratching. I've owned many bikes of all shapes, sizes, and styles, probably around 100. How does someone own 100 bikes? You must be buying and selling multiple times every single year. Amazing, though. Good passion. I like it. Uh, I currently have a Himalayan that I bought new. Uh, when, I uh, still can't get over that, 100 bikes. Okay, bought a Himalayan that I bought new when I retired from the fire service, which was intended for a trip across the Trans-European Trail, Tet. Now, for many reasons, that trip never happened, and I just doubt it ever will. Also, we cannot legally ride on trails here in Northern Ireland. You know, I've been told that before. We take it for granted in the UK, and I'm sure other countries... There are many, many places where we can ride off-road legally. They're called green lanes, and you can take your bike, just your normal road bike, and just ride off-road seamlessly. Yes, you get a dog walker every so often who's annoyed, but the point is it's legal, so no one has a right to stop you. I've done it many times, and it's incredible fun. Similarly, I went to Lithuania with Monica over the summer, and Lithuania's like somewhere else. You get to a forest in Lithuania, and there is... And an endless network of off-roading tracks and trails that go on forever and you never see another human. It's the amount of space in Lithuania to enjoy off-roading. I haven't knowingly seen it anywhere else in Europe. It just feels like you're free to explore forest in any direction. It's fantastic. So to not be able to do that, to not be able to off-road freely in your own country, that, that is a, a tough pill to swallow. I continue. Also, we can't legally ride off-road in Northern Ireland. So the Himalayan, a three-year-old bike, sits in my garage, specced up for an overland trip, but with just 160 miles from new and no way to ride it as it should be ridden. So the itch is, should it stay or should it go? This then sparked the question, what will I replace it with? Or as you say on your podcast so often, what kind of biker am I? The answer should lie among the bikes that I've owned. So after some deep thinking and a couple of glasses of Buffalo Trace, I've come up with an answer of sorts. There are two bikes I've kept the longest, five years. A Honda Hornet 600 and a BMW R1150GS. Both kept five years and both bikes I keep coming back to. The Honda VFR 800 is another. I've had five of them. I've, I've never fully understood this. Someone let me know, including Stephen. Stephen, let me know. How do you go about owning five of the same bike? Because you must love it in the first place to keep it. Okay, and then you get rid of it. And then you maybe make a mistake and realize, damn, I need to buy another one. So that's two. But how do you go about getting the next three? 
five VFRs. I continue. <laughs> I've discounted the GS. I'm over the massive bike thing, and an old bloke on a GS has become a cliche. So my shortlist is this, and I found a couple online attached. Honda Hornet 600, 2003, 2,500 miles, 2,999 pounds. These are nice bikes, the Hornets, and they're, they're going to be a very good solid investment. They're not going to go down a penny. For me, it's, it's the look that I wish the new Hornet would have kept with the circular headlamp. It's a very elegant, understated bike, that old 600 Hornet. Really nice lines. It's not an eye-catcher of a bike, but just lovely, lovely, elegant-looking thing that will age... Well, it has aged well, and it will continue to do so. Honda VFR 800, 2003, 9,000 miles, 3,600 pounds. I've been, been talking strangely a lot about Hondas in the past two podcasts, I think, and that's because they make a huge amount of sense for sub... I mean, any bike makes a lot of sense if it's a Honda, but sub £5,000, the Hondas you can get. And again, the VFR 800, universally good things. I have never heard a bad word about this. I know a couple of AA drivers who swear by these VFR 800s as well and specifically search them out. They rate them so highly, they only ride VFRs. And my joker of the pack, I continue, is... Uh, similar in many ways to the Hornet, and a bike I've never actually ridden. That's the Street Triple 675 from Triumph. 2012 model, 4,000 miles, 4,695 pounds. The kind of riding I'm likely to do, local days out, occasional commuting to my part-time job delivering Sainsbury's, and the odd camping trip in Ireland or Scotland. Okay, mm-hmm. I'd love to hear your thoughts and maybe other ideas. As you can probably tell, I go for low mileage and, is, and as new condition. Stephen, it's really interesting because, relatively speaking, you're picking out old bikes, but immaculate old bikes. It's just really interesting how different bikers focus on different things. For me, I usually go for the highest vehicle, the highest mileage vehicle I possibly can, but ideally, well, I say ideally the newest, it's just the cheapest for me. Higher mileage means cheaper. Uh, so, that's a good shortlist. In fact, I've spent about 20 minutes trying to beat this shortlist, even, and I I'm not 100% sure I can, but I've come up with three for you. The first one is a BMW. Now, I know you said the big BMWs are a cliché, but there's a BMW that was hugely popular, and excuse me as I just type into Facebook here. There's a BMW in Tenerife that was really popular. I would see this everywhere. And the police use it as well. And it's a handsome looking thing. It never really caught my eye before, but seeing so many of them in Tenerife and seeing how highly they rate them there, it, it did slightly change my mind. They look best in black, and it's the BMW... F650 GS. You can take your pick. You can get them for about £3,000 on Facebook Marketplace. And they've aged really well because they never had too much plastic on them. It's a, a nice black, I think they call it trellis frame, keep it with black bodywork, and it's a really elegant looking thing. It will have a nice amount of power. And again, you can get a lowish model one, lowish mileage model one. I mean, take your pick for under 4K, but if you want to push it, definitely 3K. So that's the first one, Stephen. 
Second is a bike that's extremely highly regarded with a, I believe top of my head, it's a, a V-twin air-cooled engine, and that's the SV650. Now I've never ridden this bike before, but again, highly regarded, characterful engine, and it's quite rare to get a bike of such character in what is quite a simple bike. Elegant looks, single front headlamp. Again, I mean, I almost can't believe this. I was about to say to you, you can get an older model for within your budget, but I am now looking at one. I almost can't believe it. I'm looking at a 2020 Suzuki SV650 here on Facebook Marketplace for £3,900 with, with 4,800 miles on the clock. I almost can't believe the price of it. Just due to lack of time to ride in the new season I'm selling. Excellent condition without scratches or marks. Suzuki SV650. You could easily go for a 15-year-old model, but it looks like you can get a three-year-old model for easily within your budget, Stephen. And the final one I'm going to do. Now, I took a picture of this because there's, there's a specific one. Let's have a look. This is a bike, again, close to my heart. I recently mentioned it. A 2010 model. You can go for any age, but if you go for the 700cc, um, that will be slightly newer model, slightly more powerful. Honda Transalp. Honda Transalp 700. Just like what I was saying before, the Transalp's coming back now. These old Transalps are going to be more and more appealing for people. You can get a 12, 13 year old one. Lovely looking bike, really nice. Circular front headlamp. I think they've aged very well actually. 4,600 miles on the clock. It's completely immaculate. Can't go wrong with that. I would say though, Stephen, uh, it's hard to compete with your first two, especially at Honda VFR for the kind of riding you're doing. I can tell you want something a bit more comfortable. I've got a feeling you'll go for the Honda VFR 800. Let me do, excuse me, let me do know, let me do know, let me know what you go for. And I'll follow that on, Stephen, with a little insight here. Have a listen to this. Freddie, just bought a 2004 Honda VFR 800, 17,000 miles on the clock, Mint condition, one owner, garaged all its life, full Honda luggage, full Honda service history, 2,800 pounds. I mean, how do you compete with that for such a good bike? I might now be selling some more other, um, some other more expensive bikes that I seldom ride except to the MOT test station. Alex, see Alex, that's exactly it. The bikes that we use most, a lot of the time, they're, they're just the bikes that are easiest to ride. And I bet you've got some bikes in your garage that are more expensive than the Honda, but the Honda, full Honda luggage, is the one that you favor. Thank you for that. Moving on to John. Freddie, you'll be surprised at how cheap those plastic parts are. Ah, for the Honda Scoopy, it will be maximum 20 pounds to replace that front Honda Scoopy pannier and put a new one on. But then you realize what a rip-off Britain is. Um, and we've got the famous saying, where there is blame, there is a claim. Ah, John, you're probably right. I read in the news last week, there's such a shortage of skilled people in the UK now, it's probably at crisis point, that 
that bricklayers are now, some bricklayers are on £125,000 a year. 125k for bricklayers because it's a skilled job and we just don't have any skilled, we don't have any, we've got very few, certainly not enough skilled people in the UK and it leads on to motorcycle mechanics. When you get your bike serviced, it's a skilled job. Getting, getting a mechanic to work on your bike. If you take it to Triumph, BMW, especially a main dealer, the amount they charge is astronomical, but that's because the salaries they have to pay are astronomical, the business rates they pay are huge, and probably renting the actual premises because land in the UK costs so much is astronomical as well. It's like I, I often mention my old mechanic back in Kingston he used to have his own garage where he worked and he had that for a few years. And I said, why did you get rid of it? And he said, because it took all the enjoyment out of my work. I ended up working almost a third of the month just to pay for my business premises. So he got rid of his business premises and he just works from his garage in his front garden. And it's brought the joy back of actually working on bikes for him. So if you can work on your own bikes and at least do the bare minimum, and bear in mind this comes from me, who is not mechanically inclined, you'll save a lot of money and time. Last summer, I needed some work doing on the Bonneville. I had, I had waiting quotes for mechanics of three months. Three months for a mechanic to fix my bike. So I ended up fixing it myself, but if I'd have waited, biking season gone. That's what it's like in the UK. Moving on, Heletti. Freddie. Oh, good story. Freddie, I have, I have a wheel. I did have a wheel on a ute, which is the Australian pickup truck. I did have a wheel on a ute decide to come off on its own in Tonga a while back and sort of destroy a very large Tongan man's front fence on a Sunday afternoon. After hearing the destruction, several very large Tongan boys from the residence came to investigate. They retrieved the wheel sort of tidied up the fence, found a couple of spare wheel nuts, bodily lifted up the ute by hand, and then refitted the wheel. Then they refused to let us go until we'd shared Sunday afternoon lunch with them. The simpler and poorer the people, the more generous they are. Hmm, Heletti. I do agree, I think. On to Renra. I've just taken my theoretical exam for my motorcycle license and in two weeks I'll have my practical exam. I'm looking to buy a Motogutsi V7 Stone 2022 or 2023 model. In terms of looks, I think my dream bike would be the Bonneville T120, but the price, weight and power makes me inclined more towards the Motogutsi, which I love as well. I've just seen some on the street and the sound of changing the gears is so recognisable and I just love it. It seems to be a bike with great personality. There's also the Interceptor from Royal Enfield on my mind because it's cheaper, but I don't see it as much on the streets. I live in Bucharest, Rom Romania, um, to really have a good impression about it. Also, the fuel tank is smaller compared to the V7, and I'm not sure if I like that. I'd love some advice from you or your followers about picking the Motogutsi V7. Yes, Renra, I agree with you. You've got a great shortlist there, so for you to not even have passed your test and already have such a great selection of bikes there. Nicely done, very nicely done. Forget about the Interceptor. And the reason I say that, it's your third choice. 
so stick to your top two choices. The Moto Guzzi V7 stone that you're picking is very good because you're going for the 850cc instead of the 750cc engine. I rode the 750cc engine. It is a bit gutless. It's a little bit, in fact, it's much closer to the Interceptor power-wise than it is the Bonneville. So for you to go for the 850, that's a very, very good choice. The Moto Guzzi V7 stone is not a poor relation to the Triumph, even the T120. It's it's a brilliant bike in its own right. So you really don't need to feel like you're getting second best there with the Goodsey. They're very special. And I'm gonna tell you something that for me is one of the biggest selling points for Moto Goodsey. And it will be a little backstory. I was having a chat. It was probably about six months ago. Um, chat slash argument with someone. And I was saying, look, it doesn't matter where motorbikes made. Someone said, Freddie, how do you feel about Triumphs being made in Thailand? I said, it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is it is a good bike. I just care the fact it's a good bike. I only want to buy a good bike. Where it's made, it means nothing. And he said to me, okay, would you buy a Rolex if it's made in China? Okay, I was silent. And I thought deeply about that. No. No, I wouldn't buy a Rolex if it was made in China. Does the same apply to other bikes? And the reason I bring this up, Moto Guzzi is made in Italy and that makes it special. When you go to Italy, I remember being in Sicily and you see Moto Guzzi repair shops on the side of the roads with a line of red Moto Guzzi's all single headlamp chrome lined up like some museum piece, but it's not a museum. They're all there as everyday commuter bikes to be worked on. It's a fantastic sight. And being made in Italy, that's worth an awful lot. Would I prefer Triumphs to be made in the UK? Yeah, because it gives you an extra feeling of attachment, but would I be willing to pay the extra money for the price of a, a new Triumph to be made in the UK if we're talking realistically? Maybe not, that's the truth. And there, that's where the problem lies. Economies of scale, cheaper labor, but somehow Moto Guzzi have done it and they still make them in Italy, so Renra, that is a huge point. You're buying Italian craftsmanship, a proper, proper Italian product in that Moto Guzzi, and that is a magical thing. That means it will just age beautifully, it will always have a story and a history to it. So put that Moto Guzzi on a level with the T120. Yes, the T120 will be a better bike, it's more powerful and it's incredibly impressive and it's probably top five dream bikes for me. But that's a huge selling point for the Moto Guzzi. The Triumph, yes, it is slightly bigger physically and it will be a heavier bike, but the weight's so well situated, you will be able to ride the T120 straight after passing your test. But I would say the happy medium ground for you, Renra, is that Moto Guzzi V7 stone with one thing that you must consider. Every American I've ever spoken to about Moto Guzzi has not ever, never, had a good word to say about their after-sales service. Every American says Moto Guzzi's after-sales service and network is atrocious, and it's a reason either they have sold the Moto Guzzi's or they'd never buy a Moto Guzzi, or they physically just can't use it, because getting the parts sometimes can take three or four months. Now, Romania's very different because you are relatively very close to Italy, so it may not be that bad, but I would highly recommend checking that you're at least semi-near a Moto Guzzi dealer or a good mechanic who knows how to work on them and, importantly, can get parts for them. Because Moto Guzzi 
it's a bit more hit and miss than with other brands. So just make sure you've got that. For example, with me in Ipswich, I live near a Moto Guzzi authorized reseller or authorized dealer. They sell a few different things, but Moto Guzzi is one of them. And it means that I would buy a Moto Guzzi because I've been into their garage. I know that they can work on Moto Guzzi so they can get the parts without any issues, without anything, you know, saying, I've heard stories before of Moto Guzzi. You know, the Italians, they, they go on their, their summer holidays and they, they shut down in years gone by. So you can't get parts for two or three months. Whether or not that's true, I don't know, but I do know that it can be difficult to get parts. So make sure anyway you're happy with that. If you've got a good C dealership near you, get a good C. If you're slightly concerned about that, I would say squeeze the extra money for the Triumph if you can. Let me know what you go for. Good choice and good luck two weeks time. Good luck with it, the exam. Move on. I've got a challenge here, Freddie. I've got 500 pounds to buy three pieces of motorcycle clothing equipment. What do you buy? That's, that's, not, that's not hard enough. That's not a good enough challenge. I'm going one better or two better than this. For 500 pounds, ready for the 2023 biking season, I'm going to kit myself out head to toe in gear I genuinely like, wanting to wear myself. That's boots, jeans, jacket, gloves, helmet for a tiny smidgen, I think 40 pounds over the 500 pound mark. So here goes. Facebook Marketplace, hood motorbike jeans. I own these AAA rated, the safest biking jeans you can possibly buy, 50 pounds in black so it will go with everything. The boots, now I've splashed the cash here and I've gone for one of the most high-end desirable pairs of boots you can get, and that's from a company called Rocker. These are usually around about 360 pounds, but I can get these at 200 pounds or best offer. So maybe I could get 20 or 40 pounds off to actually be within budget. But to get those new, and they're classed as new, never worn, 200 pounds for Rocker Urban Boots. We're talking dream level stuff here. Okay, so we're on about 250, 200 pounds or so. Next up, Merlin motorcycle wax cotton jacket size large. Again, classic timeless wax cotton Merlin British brand. I would 100% wear this jacket myself. That's 100. So we're now on to three, 350, 350, 300 pounds or so. Next up, gloves from another British company, Gold Top zipped fleece lined cafe racer gloves. Beautiful, elegant black gloves. 30 pounds. And to wrap it up, a helmet that I've wanted for a while. I saw it in Urban Rider, and for me it was the nicest helmet in Urban Rider. It's got a flip down visor that you can lift up, but it hasn't seemingly increased the shell size, which is very clever and hard to do. So it's got that flip down visor, it's got that very cool kind of desert racer chin guard. I think they're usually about 360 pounds. But this is advertised at £165, and to me, it looks like it's in almost as new condition. So assuming I don't get one penny discount on any of these products, I think I'm up to about £540 or so. But I've got to get at least £40 off spread across these five items. And that means I have kitted myself out for five hundred pounds ready for the season and not just in any old gear but in dream level gear every single piece of it 
pleasure. I move on to Steve. Freddie, I've got a 1948 Harley Flathead 74 Bobber that I built. Oh, let me put pictures up here. These are fantastic. But I ride a 1998 Harley Heritage Shoftail Springer with 54,000 miles on it. I ride it every day that I can. I ride it every day that I can to work and back. A 60 mile round trip. There's no way this is a garage queen. When I said old gray beards have a chopper in the garage and ride newer bikes, the newer ones can be a 25 year old Harley. Harleys have got three types of bikes. You've got new ones, old ones, and really old ones. Their longevity is a testament to the brothers that keep them alive. And they do that because they're not just a bike, they're a part of the family. New bikes are fun, fast, and have loads of tech, but the older bikes have a soul and a story. I truly believe if you ever learn how to operate a kickstart, Freddie, you would fall in love with an older bike. Ah, oh, maybe, I'll be open-minded. I continue, you don't, have to buy an, uh, you don't have to buy an old pan head for big money. You can get a 25 year old, <coughs> excuse me, 25 year old Evo Softail for cheap. They have saddlebags, very comfortable seats for two up riding and plenty of power to climb any mountain. Yeah, Steve, I often look at those. The 13, are they 1340cc Harleys? You can pick them up for about 7,000 pounds or so, and it is a tempting proposition. And there is something, aye, Steve, you know I like my Harleys, but there is something about Harleys, that, that feeling with them. You also feel with a Harley, at least I would anyway, like you've almost got an heirloom that you know must be passed down, especially if it's something really special. You know, they never drop in value. In fact, they probably start going up in value. And each one of them is a very, very special thing to own. I mean, Harley riders look after their Harleys probably, probably better than anyone else. I think they are the kind of riders who will look after them and clean them with a toothbrush. But the 1340 Evo, just before I move on, that may be too old for me because I may freak out a bit with that, Steve. I'm, I always like to see if I can get a bike from about 2008 or at least fuel injection onwards because kickstarts freak me out and carved bikes now do slightly freak me out just because I used to have so many problems with them. Steve, thank you. Oh, and the pics here, I've got to say, Steve, looks like you're living the American dream. You've got a Chevrolet truck there. You've got your old Harley, your older Harley, and I'm sure I can see a Honda in there as well. What a garage. Thank you, Steve. I move on. John, Ari, the so-called environmentally friendly, or Ari, the so-called environmentally fuel, environmentally friendly fuels made from ethanol. These are not environmentally friendly. I used to work in Brazil and I've seen firsthand the destruction of the rainforests, seen them burning from the air all to plant the maize, which mostly goes into illegal distilleries and then into our E10 petrol. I know this as I worked for one of the world's biggest energy companies. So when you fill up your car with E10, don't feel smug thinking you're helping the planet, thinking about, uh, thinking about Think about the billions of trees that we're losing each year and the billions of animals that are losing habitats. The politicians know all about this. 
but they choose to hide behind the environmental moth that is environmentally friendly fuels. John. Eye-opening, John. Depressing, but eye-opening. Thank you. Moving on. I originally wanted a street twin or T100, probably now more a T100 or even a T120. You see, this is the thing, just butting in here. So many of us, we, we do end up going on that journey, just graduating and graduating, often with the same or similar kind of bikes from, from the smaller ones, the Street Twin, up to the T120. I'd very, be very curious how many people buy one of the smaller engined equivalents, for example, a Street Twin 900, and keep it and are content with it and don't move on to that bigger bike. For example, when I bought my Bonneville, they only ever had one Bonneville. It was the 865. There was never a bigger, bigger engine one of my model. So I, I never had it in my mind when I was looking for it. <clears throat> what shall I go for? Shall I go for the smaller one or shall I go for what many may see as the real deal? I continue because it is, it's a predicament that a lot of us, whether new to biking or experienced bikers are in, I continue, um, but I couldn't afford one, so I bought a second-hand Interceptor. Okay, bought a second-hand Interceptor, which I love. I'm tempted, when it's nicer weather, to go and try a Bonneville T120 or Bonneville T100 at a dealer, but I'm just worried that I want one even more. Will I really notice the difference? I'm still new to biking and still find it great to ride. And is it worth taking out extra finance for one? The Interceptor is bought and paid for. Really would like your thoughts. All the best, Mr. T. It's, it's a really difficult one. I sit on two sides of the fence here. One, financial freedom, with regards to a bike at least, is a really special thing. And it's sometimes not appreciated until you get a more expensive vehicle and you feel that hit where you're paying the finance company off every month. But that financial freedom means you can enjoy your interceptor with a clearer mind and not so much worry. And you can very possibly push it a bit harder because you're not quite so worried about it as you would be with a bike that you're still paying the finance off for. But if you can, comfortably-ish at least, and everyone knows their limits, what they can comfortably do. If you can comfortably afford a T100 or a T120, I, I have to say this, you will go to the dealership, you will test a T100 and a T120 and you'll be blown away. They are a very, very big step up from the Interceptor. The Interceptor's a brilliant bike, I love it, but there's something about the Bonnevilles. They're sublime bikes to ride. The quality's exceptional. And if you go to a Triumph dealer and you test one of them, you will be leaving with at least having made an inquiry for how much your Interceptor's going to get part exchange and what kind of finance you can do. Because I think once you've tried one of those, I don't know if it's possible to go back to the Interceptor because they are a very big step up. Now, if you can make the step from a T100 to, to a T120, obviously you're going to just save yourself one jump. I can see you like the T120. So it may be worth just 
saving yourself one step and just going straight all the way over to the T120. Although I would say that I think, although I've never ridden the new T100, it may well be the ultimate all round modern classic. I think it just fits everything, whether it's the price, the performance, the weight, the looks, I think the T100 would be, I'm almost certain with this, even though I've never ridden it, I think it would be my pick of modern classics as the ultimate modern classic. But the T120 is very hard not to fall head over heels with. So if you do test it, I'd be fascinated to hear your thoughts. If you can stretch money-wise, if the money's there, I think you'll be leaving with a T120. But yes, in a roundabout way to answer your questions, yes, it is a big enough step up without question. You will feel it immediately in every area of the bike in, in the most positive way. Moving on, Tim. Sorry, I don't know why I said it like that. Freddie, uh, as per your podcast. Yes, this is brilliant. This just arrived for £2,000. Front and back, brake levers and a rear lamp need replacing and I can, uh, and a can of black exhaust paint and jobs are good. Tim took a, a seeming risk and he bought this Royal Enfield Classic 350, but it was a write-off. And it always feels like a bit of a risk if you're ever buying a write-off vehicle. In fact, I was just about to say I've never done it, but of course the Bonneville's a write-off, so I have done it. But if you buy a, a CAT non-structural, the lowest level of write-off vehicle, there's nothing wrong with them. This needed a new light and new levers. And it looks perfect. You change those things and there's nothing wrong with the bike at all. And you somehow manage to get, I can barely get my head around this, a classic 350 for 2,000 pounds. I think, and I include myself here, more of us could or should, maybe could's the best word, could be open-minded to getting a, a category write-off motorbike if it's in the least serious banding because there's really nothing wrong with them at all. And if you've got the most basic mechanical knowledge of just unscrewing something and screwing a new bit back on, going onto eBay, getting the cheap part, you've got a, a brilliant bike with literally nothing wrong with it. Tim, happy riding. I bet you are over the moon with that. Over the moon. That's got to be the deal of the year. Moving on to Martin. Freddie, greetings from Poland. Regarding DCT transmissions, some time ago I met a biker who was, due to an accident, missing his left leg below the knee. He was back then in the progress of moving from a scooter to his brand new DCT Africa Twin. He was more than happy about being able to ride a proper motorbike instead of being limited to CVT scooters, which is a perfect example of tech in service of humanity, isn't it? Martin, you've, you've just given the best possible example there about how, how tech in general, whether it's DCT or other technologies similar, can hugely help out. And people in certain situations, it can be the difference between certain people actually being able to ride and certain people having to give up on biking. It's the best possible example. Thank you, Martin. To Marius. Freddie, I want to know your thoughts on modern classic bikes. And what do you think makes them so expensive compared to other modern bikes? Example, in Ireland, where I am, that should say a lot about the price of everything. The price of a BSA 
or Royal Enfield Supermeteor or Interceptor is shy of 10,000 euros. Let me button here, Marius, for a second. That sounds like with a, a rough conversion in my head. In Ireland, you have to pay about £2,000 more for the exact same motorbike that we pay in the UK. Royal Enfield, I think they're around about for an interceptor, six and a half thousand pounds. And if I convert your pricing, that could be nine and a half thousand euros in, in Ireland, just across the water. I've heard Swedes as well, over in Sweden, telling me the exact same, that bikes in Sweden are hugely expensive. It's so funny how with relatively tiny distances, bikes can be so much cheaper or more expensive. I continue. Around the same, for around about the same money, you're going to find bikes such as the Honda CB650, Yamaha XSR700, New Hornet, etc. All with much more performance. Is it just the looks that make this bike, these bikes so expensive? And does it actually make any sense that the modern classics are the same price as better bikes? No, Marius. No, because if you put, yeah, if you put the, the Royal Enfield Super Meteor, I tell you what, let's do one we know here, or one I know. Royal Enfield Interceptor. I think they're about six and a half grand now. Let's compare that to the new Honda Hornet. And this is just off the top of my head. Like, I think the Honda Hornet, the brand new one that's come out, is, is not a, a great looking bike. But every review says it's a brilliant bike. That's regardless of the looks. The actual bike itself is brilliant. It's a revelation. I think the styling doesn't do anything for me at all. But that's beside the point, because if we're looking, we're not talking about looks here. We're talking about quality of bikes and the value of that bike. Honda have built a 90 horsepower Hornet, which every single motorcycle journalist says is a brilliant bike. And they've got it a smidgen just under the 7,000 pound mark. That means it's 500 pounds more than an Interceptor. But God, we're getting very close here pricing wise. That is a really, really close matchup price wise now. And as Mara said, Honda CB650 and the Yamaha XSR700, they're about the same price as the Interceptors and the BSA. But if you look at the new Hornet, that's got 43 horsepower, which is completely colossal. 43 horsepower more than the Interceptor. And it's going to have a huge amount of different electronics as well. So why, why? Are these modern classics relatively as expensive as much better bikes on paper? And I honestly can't answer that. I'm not 100% sure. Would that change my buying process, Maris, knowing that? No, because I buy, I buy from the heart. I don't buy with the head. I, I see something that tugs at my, pulls at my heartstrings, and that's the most important thing for me. But, but it's a very interesting point you make. Because if you look at it from a level-headed point of view, you will go Japanese. You will not go for these, uh, these British marks at all. It's quite hard to justify if you're trying to explain to someone. Is it that the modern classics are, are better built, better finished? 
Yeah, if you look at the BSA Gold Star, a bike that I really like, no, it's probably not better finished than these Japanese bikes. It's not. Marius, I can't answer that in a positive manner. That's a very interesting point you make. Moving on to Chris. Freddie, mm -mm, sorry, BMW GS 1150, they are not modern classics, they're too new. You've got to go back to the 80s. If you said to me Yamaha XT500 or Honda XL125 to 600, that's the kiddie. Regards, Chris. Okay, Chris. Okay, let's have a look at this. Right, let's see what we can do here. Yamaha XT500. I checked earlier on this. There wasn't one of these available on eBay. And that's the problem. Once bikes start getting to a certain age, maybe it's 40 years old, they start getting really hard to find. I couldn't find one of these Yamahas on eBay. But, Chris, can I find one? Let me see the bike you're talking about and the price. Yamaha XT500. Do we have anything? Marketplace. Yamaha XT500. Oh, we do. Mm, I see what you mean, Chris. It's a lovely bike. Two of them available. Again, this is the joy of Facebook Marketplace. There wasn't one Yamaha XT available on eBay. I go onto Facebook Marketplace and there are two of them. 1976 Yamaha XT in need of recommissioning, £5,000. I mean, this bike is a work of art. It's, it's iconic, actually, this bike. is really beautiful. Or you need to spend an extra £2,000, £7,195 in total, for 1980 Yamaha XT. They need to bring this back, Yamaha. That looks stunning. Chrome tank, beautiful XT writing with the 500 in white below it, high front mud guard, strip back, no plastic at all. Lovely looking thing. 35,000 miles on the clock, 500cc, 7,000 pounds. Uh, Chris, I see what you mean. Yeah, I see what you mean. I move on. Uh, and we'll, we'll end it here with Dale. Freddie, I did something I don't normally do when I, renew my, when I renew my motorbike insurance. I read the terms and conditions. And as I thought, it seems that insurance companies are looking for anything to increase the premium by saying you didn't disclose your modification. When it says, is your bike modified in any way? I think most people say no without thinking and certainly don't update the insurance when they do modify it. In the definition, it said panniers were a modification, as were a change in paint from the original and anything I bolted onto it, even if it was a genuine part found on other models within that mark. I've always thought a modification was replacing parts to non-standard parts or self-manufactured parts in some way. Like when I put a 21-inch Harley front wheel on my XVS 1300. Panniers, a tried and tested addition, not a modification, as is putting on extra decals. Something to be careful of when making your bike your own. You may not get paid out if the worst happens just by adding something that makes it more comfortable or safer to ride and you don't fully disclose everything that you do to your bike. Dale, 
This is a really important point to, to end on, Dale, and quite eye-opening because I've probably had I've probably had modifications on Bonneville. Yes, Suzuki Bandit came with a horrible sanding aftermarket exhaust. I didn't claim those as modified. Triumph Speed Triple. Yeah, yeah, it's been a while actually since I've had a standard bike and I don't think I've declared that because they haven't been performance enhancing bits. So this is quite eye-opening especially if you have a bike on the more expensive side and you really need to make sure that if you crash, you're covered, you're reimbursed from the insurance company. Mm, Dale, thank you for that. Actually, one other point I should make on that, even if you're running a cheaper bike and you think, oh, I'll save a bit on insurance, what if you do crash into a Ferrari, do 10 grand's worth of damage? Will the insurance company actually come back and say, mm -mm, not gonna happen? your insurance isn't correct, it's invalidated because you're riding a modified bike. So we're not gonna pay out for the Ferrari, we're not gonna pay out for you. Mm, words of warning there from Dale, thank you so much. I will end it there. Thank you so much everyone for listening to, uh, well, to the slightly newly rebranded channel. I will make sure to be posting videos every, every single Tuesday. Please do uh, leave your thoughts in the comments section. You can also send an email. I'll leave all of the details in the written description below. Do check that written description because I may also have to update the email address because of course I can't now call it Freedom Machine. So check all the details in the written description. Thank you so much everyone for all of your support and for watching this week's episode. Have a fantastic week. See you all in the next one.